I'm going to read from Second uh, Samuel, Second Samuel chapter 21. If you've not been with us recently, just to say to you that we've been working through some of the stories of David as we find them in Second uh, Samuel, in particular in the story of his kingship. A few weeks ago, we took the opportunity over two Sunday nights to sort of tell the story from Second Samuel 13 right through to Second King or First Kings. Um, when Solomon takes over and a lot of old scores are settled by Solomon's son David on his father's instruction. Um, Since then we've just been dipping back into some parts of this. And this evening I want to look at part of 2 Samuel chapter 21. We mentioned this in passing, but we didn't spend any time on it before. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, It is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house, it is because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make amends so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do for you? David asked. They answered the king, As for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we might have been decimated, And have no place anywhere in Israel. Let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed. And exposed before the Lord at Gabeah of Saul. The Lord's chosen one. So the king said. I will give them to you. The king spared Mephibosheth son of Jonathan. The son of Saul. Because of the oath before the Lord. Between David and Jonathan son of Saul. But the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Ahiah's daughter Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter Merab, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Melathite. He handed them over to the Gibeonites, who killed and exposed them on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Rizpah, daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the birds of the air touch them by day or the wild animals by night. When David was told what Ai's daughter Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead. They had taken them secretly from the public square at Beth-Shan where the Philistines had hung them after they struck Saul down in Gilboa. David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father, Kish, 
had Zillah in Benjamin and did everything the king commanded. After that, God answered prayer on behalf of the land. I wonder what your initial reaction is as you hear that story. I rather suspect it's not one you're familiar with from Sunday school. I think there probably isn't a flannel graph of this story anywhere in the children's teaching materials. And what we want to do this evening is try and make sense of this story and reflect on it. Um, and, And think about what Scripture is saying, how Scripture works as we look at a passage like this, which seems to be full of things which we would recoil from and feel are very much anathema. I need to tell you another story just to set a little bit of the context for you. Um, It's a story that's in Joshua chapter 9. Uh, You'll find that on page um, 223 of the copies of the Bible that's in the pew. And the context here is that Joshua and the people have just crossed the Jordan from east of the river into the promised land. They're just beginning to take possession of the land and conquer the land. And um, Jericho has fallen, Ai is destroyed, and then there are people who hear about this and begin to panic. And um, there's a, a group of people who decide that while others are gathering together to attack the Israelites, because they're terrified of them, obviously, um, there's another group who decide to take a different approach. And it's verse 3 of Joshua chapter 9 at the top of page 224. And when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. The men put worn and pat sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and mouldy. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us. How then can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, Who are you and where do you come from? And they answered, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, and so on. Um, Verse 14, The men of Israel sampled their provisions that were with them, but did not inquire of the Lord. And verse 15, Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. And if you read the rest of the story, you'll discover that while some of the people wanted to take them on for this deception, the leaders of Israel absolutely refused. And they made a treaty of peace with them. And the leaders of the assembly, Joshua and others, had ratified it by oath. And there was no way they were going back on that. And that's what the rest of that chapter is about. And the deal that was struck then, because the Gibeonites had deceived the Israelites, the Israelites kept to their oath, they didn't harm them, but they made them work for them. Verse 23, they said, You are now under a curse. You will never cease to serve as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God and they were quite happy with that because they, the option for them they felt had been annihilation now that's the background to the incident in 2 Samuel chapter 21 
an oath, a treaty, a solemn treaty that had been entered into by two parties and the difficulties surrounding which had been resolved in terms of the way in which they would relate to one another. Um, in the time of Joshua, many, many years um, before Saul and David. The situation seems to be in Second Samuel chapter 21 that Saul sought to annihilate these people, to get rid of them completely. Um, an act of genocide against the Gibeonites, despite the fact that this treaty had been made with the Gibeonites by the children of Israel in a previous generation to which Saul was also bound and that's what this passage is about. It's interesting because if you've been with us, you may remember that in 2 Samuel chapter 16, as David and all the people are leaving Jerusalem because Absalom, his son, has declared himself to be king and seems to be coming to take over Jerusalem, and David flees the city. Uh, on the way out of the city and on the journey, there's a Benjamite, a Shemai, who curses him. And throws dirt at him. Do you remember that passage, you know, as David and the people are walking past and he's throwing stones and dirt at David. And he's, he's accusing him of being a killer um, and of shedding the blood of the house of Saul. Now, when you read that in Second Samuel 16, it doesn't make any sense because there's no record of David shedding blood in the household of Saul. Quite the opposite. I mean, he's caring for Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan. And it all seems terribly strange. Why would he do that? But this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 21 is part of a kind of appendices. Um, the next three or four chapters here will all have material that's out of sync. It's not in its uh, chronological order. But it's gathered together very deliberately as a kind of summary of other important things you need to know about David. And it actually, the event itself seems to belong to sometime around 2 Samuel chapter 9, shortly after David had found Jonathan's son Mephibosheth, and out of his oath of loyalty to Jonathan, had made provision for Mephibosheth, who is mentioned in here. So this seems to belong to an earlier period of David's reign. Now, I'll not go into the details of this, but chapters 21 to 24 are understood to be a kind of collection of material that's important to understand to get the full picture of who David was and how he worked and his relationship with God. But the events and the things that are recorded in those chapters belong to different periods of David's life. It's like somebody sticking an appendices at the back of a thesis or something, except it's probably a bit more intentional. Very often an appendices at the back of a thesis is all that stuff that isn't really all that important, but it's good to show it anyway. Um, this is important because it tells us more about David. So that's the context. Take it from chapter 21, set it in some time after chapter 9, and all the events that are going on around there. So it's much earlier in David's reign. It doesn't belong chronologically to this point of coming back to Jerusalem. It belongs to a period before Absalom, a period before David's adultery with Bathsheba and everything starting to go terribly pear-shaped. And that will also be important in making sense of the passage. There are various ways to read this passage. It sounds strange. It sounds like human sacrifice is the thing that satisfied God and kept God happy. It all sounds very bizarre. It sounds like David's very happy with this whole arrangement. How do you read this? What are you meant to make of it? Let me give you three ways in which people read it. And one way in which it's read is to say that this is a kind of protest passage. It's deeply, it's filled with irony. Um, a commentator called Brueggemann takes the, that, this approach. 
And he says basically that up to this point, up to the end of chapter 20, we've got the official story of David, and David looks pretty good in it. Um, that even with some of his mistakes recorded there, David looks pretty good. He looks the authentic thing, the real king of Israel, good guy. Um, and Brueggemann is quite dogmatic that the incident itself is true, but the story about Saul's genocide of the Gibeonites is a piece of Davidic fabrication. In other words, Saul didn't uh, slaughter the Gibeonites. And he's quite strong in that. But he does believe that David gave these seven sons over to the Gibeonites. Here's what he says. The passage is about David's brutal act of self-interest, committed in the name of responsible religion and justifiable politics. An act of self-interest in which he eliminates the remaining descendants of Saul to ensure that none of them makes a claim to the throne. And Brueggemann goes on to say, The king who is presented as faithfully executing his office is in fact a ruthless, self-seeking king who takes desperate measures to secure his throne. And he goes on to say that the problem with David's claim in verse 1 of chapter 21 about the Lord saying it is on the account of Saul that this this drought has come. The problem with David's claim in verse 1 is that Saul's alleged act is without evidence. Moreover, Saul is a scrupulously religious man who is unlikely to evoke such blood guilt. Now, whatever sympathy I might have for aspects of Brueggemann's approach to this text, and I have some, which I'll explain at the end, his two pillars of evidence for his conclusion are rather astounding. The fact that there's no record of the incident prior to this point does not mean it didn't happen. It simply means there's no record of it until this point. You cannot build a complete redrafting of this passage and its intention on the fact that we don't have all the details of when and where and how Saul committed genocidal acts against the Gibeonites. And secondly, his comment that Saul was too scrupulously religious to do such a thing just amazes me. And Saul um, wasn't too scrupulously religious to slaughter all the priests of Nob. Do you remember that event? Whenever um, he was convinced that they were on David's side against him, he just slaughtered 80 of the priests like that. He he would happily have killed his own son on a number of occasions. If he had had the opportunity, he would certainly have killed David. Um, His paranoia at times seems to know no boundary. So you could read the passage that way. You could say that this is really a kind of protest passage that's saying, I've had enough of all this good guy, David. Really, he was a pretty nasty piece of work. But to do that, you've got to make major changes to the passage. And you've also got to make major changes to the story of Saul. A second way of reading this passage is to say that what we've got in this passage is the meeting, the coming together of a people of faith in God and a people who were still essentially pagan. And something that happened when they met together in this way. In other words, you've got David, who seeks to know what is wrong, goes in verse 1 and seeks the face of the Lord about the famine. And you've got the Gibeonites, who are pagans and grateful for the revenge that's been offered to them and express it in terms of pagan ritual sacrifice. They do what they would have done to any of the gods of the Canaanite religion. They offer human beings, and they think they're offering it to Yahweh, 
the God of Israel. They execute the men and they impale their bodies on stakes as a sacrifice to ensure a good harvest. Because that's what they did. They executed them and then the bodies were impaled on stakes quite possibly for months because the time of the barley harvest to the rain period is the time of spring to autumn. A man called Gana Robinson, an Indian Bible commentator, sees it in these kinds of terms. He says, on the one hand, you have to see David seeking God and seeking to know what to do. And on the other hand, you have the Gibeonites doing what comes naturally in the context of pagan religion. Um, He says specifically that the men were executed at the time of the festival and that they were hanged before the Lord indicate that this was obviously a religious sacrifice. We see here how a primitive religious belief can cause great damage to the lives of innocent people. Similar things happen even today in many primitive religions. Bringing people to a right knowledge of God is therefore an important task of the church's mission today. I'm not sure that that reading does full justice to what's going on here either because David was the king. David was in absolute control of the Gibeonites and their decisions. If he had told them that they weren't going to kill these boys, they couldn't have touched them. And they know that themselves, which is why they they make that very statement themselves. They say, we have no right to demand silver or gold, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. It's very clear that they're operating under David's authority. So it's very difficult to make that kind of distinction. The third way you can read it is to read it and say, what's going on here and what do we learn here about how God works? And a commentator called Dale Ralph Davis, who's written some excellent stuff um, on the Old Testament, takes that approach, a thoroughly theological reading of what's happening. And what he says is simply this. The passage is about the importance of covenant and the terms of the covenant. When you enter into a relationship with God, There are terms of that relationship and it's important that they are honoured because God cannot be mocked. The passage is about judgement in the context of that covenant arrangement. That Saul broke a covenant that was made and was guilty. The passage, he says, is about the need for and the fearful nature of atonement. There wasn't a need for some kind of atonement because of the genocidal acts carried out against the Gibeonites. The passage is about the grace and mercy that surrounds atonement. Even though seven die, the nation is saved. Davis, I think, rightly says, Brueggemann's approach, that first one, uh, his kind of reductionism gives us no help with the text. It gives us the gospel according to Walter, which is Brueggemann's first name. But that is hardly good news. Um, He goes on to say, we... May stomach the, others suggest we may stomach the text by realizing that though the Gibeonites had been included among the covenant people, their seven sons' demand clearly shows that they had not given up their original pagan way of thinking. And Davis doesn't agree with that at all. He said, if this episode is laced with shreds of a pagan mindset, then we hardly need worry about appropriating its truth, for its truth is a mixed bag. And while I have great sympathy for Davis' basic approach to this, I find the, the idea that there isn't something unhealthy about it a bit difficult. Perhaps in Davis's reading of it, in a well-intentioned zeal to ensure that we don't back off facing this difficult passage head on, Davis desires its message to be utterly unambiguous. And I'm not sure that it is. So how should we read it? I want to give you a couple of suggestions and I hope you'll take them away with you and you'll think about it and you'll read it and you'll come and tell me what you think 
Because if I need to preach this sermon again as a consequence of that, that would be fine. But here's a few suggestions. The first thing is this. I think you should take the text at face value. That's true of all of Scripture and all of the Old Testament. There is a temptation, reading it in the Western society in which we live, to sanitize this text, to make it more palatable, to make it more like the way we think and the way we choose to live, to make it more like our justice system rather than the justice systems that existed in ancient Israel at this particular time. So I think we should just take it at face value, first of all. This is what it says, and this is what happened. There's the temptation for us to be thrown by this kind of thing, which probably says more about us than it does actually about what the Scripture is saying in this kind of situation. And we need to take it at face value because we need to be very careful about what the option is. If we don't take it at face value, then the danger is that we set ourselves up to be more moral than Scripture or more moral than some of the people in Scripture. And truthfully, we may not be. We probably are not in most situations. So the first thing I would say is we take it at face value. There was a famine. David inquired of the Lord. That almost certainly means he went to one of the priests who used the Urim and Thummim as they would have done. They inquired of the Lord as to what the reason. I don't know how that all worked. But the answer that comes back, the reason the nation is in trouble at the minute is because of what Saul did. If we were phrasing this and rephrasing this in contemporary language, we would talk about genocide. We would talk about war crimes. We would talk about crimes against humanity. There's nothing strange about that to us in our day and generation. We've only just come out of a whole period of this being worked through in the situation in Iraq and still being worked through. That's what had happened in this situation. And something needs to be done about it. We believe that. That's why there is now a war crimes tribunal. So let's not set ourselves a million miles away from what's going on in this passage. Basically what God is saying is that things that leaders do Wars that leaders take on, genocidal acts, have to be called to account. We believe that. We shouldn't have any problem with that as we read this passage. That's what's happening increasingly in our world today. And the king summons the Gibeonites and he says to them, what what shall I do for you? He gives them an option. And their answer in verse 3 is quite ambiguous. How shall I make amends? And they answer in verse 4, we have no right to demand silver or gold, nor do we have the right to put anyone to death. And they're really standing back. They're waiting to see where David is prepared to go with this. And David then realizes they're not going to negotiate easily. And he says, what do you want me to do? And they tell him, they want blood. They want revenge for what has happened. And rightly or wrongly, David gives it to them. They can do nothing without David's approval. If David had said, you can't have blood, you can have land, you can have anything else, they would have taken it. So let's not lay all of this on God, which is the temptation, which is the big fear here, that you read this text and you think, God demanded human sacrifice. The Bible contradicts itself. The Bible is full of contradictions. It's not. David is in control. David can call the shots here. David is willing to give them the sons of Saul. And in that sense, Brueggemann might be right. Given where this belongs in the story, David may have also seen this as an opportunity of securing his throne against any possible claim from any remaining descendants of Saul. 
because he knew Mephibosheth wasn't going to claim it because he was already living in his court, Jonathan's son. So Brueggemann might be right. I don't know. Brueggemann doesn't know. None of us know. But it's possible that David was willing to give all of this because it suited him, because it worked into his political ends as well. The fact that these people were killed and exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul does not say that God demanded that this should be done this way. So again, let's not load on God this human sacrifice. The sacrifice that was instituted in Israel in the Old Testament for atonement was not human, never human sacrifice. It was always animal sacrifice. It was very clear, and it was the blood of animals that had to be shed. And David could have taken the Gibeonites in that kind of direction, but he doesn't, for whatever reason. And what we have in this situation is all seven of these sons dying together and then their bodies being impaled. That was fairly well anathema to Israel. It was not the way the Israelites conducted wars. It's not the way in which they trophied their victories. That was much more to do with the Philistines and the nations around them. But David tolerates it. And maybe, maybe almost as a rebuke and not just as an act of love, One woman, Rizpah, comes and she brings her mourning garments and she spreads them out. And she sits there day after day after day. And she chases off, whether by fire or sticks or maybe a combination of both, she chases off the wild animals who are coming to raid the corpses. She chases off the birds of the air. It is... It is the most gruesome concept. But it is actually an act of devotion that goes beyond anything you could possibly imagine. She cannot challenge what the Gibeonites have done because David has given them complete authority to do it. She cannot take the bodies down by herself. She has no right to touch them. But she waits, and if it is the case, and most commentators think it probably is, that if this was at the beginning of the barley harvest, as the text says, and she stayed until the rain came, and it was the normal rains coming again in the normal rainy season, then she was there for months. She set up home there. Until those bodies no longer had flesh upon them. And is it her act of love and devotion that so challenges David. It seems to be. That's what the text seems to be saying. That he takes the bones of Saul and Jonathan and the bones of these seven. Now remember, David honoured Saul and Jonathan in death. If you remember right back to the early part of the Second Samuel thing, do you remember the song, the lament of David, whenever Jonathan and Saul had fallen on the mountain? Do you remember the grieving that David did? Even though Saul had tried to kill him, the death of the Lord's anointed was too grievous for David in this kind of way. All of that morning, that wasn't pretense. And now he's taking the bones of Saul and Jonathan and he's putting the bones of these seven young men with Saul and Jonathan. That says something about the view that he is now taking of honoring these people. And he buries them. And when this incident is all over, which is all that the text is saying, God answered prayer on behalf of the land. The danger is to say that because seven men were sacrificed to God, God answered prayer. 
There's a danger of simply reading the text that way. But human sacrifice was anathema to God. He condemns his own people for the reason the judgment of the Assyrians and the Babylonians will come upon Israel in generations to come is precisely because they were willing to sacrifice their children in the fire. So as you read this, you take it at face value. But you weigh it against all the other things that we also know, which is what I've just been trying to do there. The things that we know about God's law, the things that we know about how God operates, the things that we know about the people involved as best we know them. And try and build a picture up of this whole thing that fits with all the other things that we know. And that allows for the possibility that just as David gave Solomon instruction to settle old arguments for him when he was long gone, that David saw an opportunity here and went beyond what was necessary in doing restitution as far as the Gibeonites were concerned. But let's remember also that not that long ago, Saddam Hussein was hanged on the gallows in Iraq, and the West had no problem with it. Could have stopped it. But under the guise of Iraqi autonomy, what little autonomy they have, the West very happily allowed it to continue. There's parallels with everything that's happening around us today with the kind of things that you read in this passage. The third thing I'd say, first of all, take the text at face value. Secondly, weigh it against all the other things that we know. And thirdly, don't expect only the one outcome. Don't, don't assume that the text is only saying one thing. There's a terrible tendency to do that amongst commentators and preachers sometimes. You know, here's this verse, I, this passage, this story. I will tell you what it means. It means this. Bang. One thing. I think that does a tremendous violence to Scripture. There are sometimes many things for us to learn. There are sometimes a number of issues, even from a story like this, that we are to draw. Like we are to contrast this woman's grief, the way in which she moves the heart of the king, clearly by her devotion and her faithfulness here, to do what is right by Saul and Jonathan and these seven young men. There are all kinds of things in this particular story. And I think it's important that we see both God's very clear statement that um, genocidal acts, the breaking of covenant, cannot go unpunished, along with the other aspects of this story, such as this woman's devotion, and the fact that it's all set in the context that this issue had to be addressed in the life of the nation. You can't bury these things. You can't pretend that they don't happen. From the very beginning of Scripture in the book of Genesis, uh, when God approaches Cain and says, where is your brother? And he says, I don't know. God says, you're fibbing, you're lying, because the very ground cries out. The ground that holds his blood. You cannot bury these things. You cannot write over history and rewrite history as if it never happened. And we can't do it today. And then when you have taken it at face value, weighed it against all the other things we know, been open to the fact that there's maybe more than one stream in the story, not only one outcome, just put all the pieces together. And what do you get when you put all the pieces together here? You get the significance of covenant as far as God is concerned and the terms of covenant, both with him and with each other. You get a sense of how seriously God judges or sees the issue of judgment in regard to the breaking of oath and covenant, especially when it's made in his name. And that should tell us something about the nature of our relationships with each other 
and the nature of our relationships with other people. We can learn from this and see in this the importance that God attaches to human life, all human life. Gibeonite life was as important as Israelite life. That's certainly one of the things that comes through in this. Saul may have written the Gibeonites off. He may have been king of Israel, but he had no right to. And God was concerned about them, even if Saul wasn't. We can see in this that even if there is a pagan expectation, even if it does actually mean that they sacrificed them at Gilgal, which was, or Gabeah, which was the home of Saul, um, which is really poignantly bringing the pain home to the Benjamite people, and that if they did it, and if they thought that in doing it, that's what would change God's mind, that this was a sacrifice that God would be pleased with and acceptable with, Whatever their expectation, whatever their pagan expectation may have been, God is in control and God will work the thing through. And the fact that people sometimes do things and are called upon to do things who are ungodly people does not mean that God is not in control. We'll see that when the Assyrians come in judgment on God's people, when the Babylonians come in judgment on God's people, and the prophets are saying, how can you do this? Habakkuk is crying or Haggai is crying how long O Lord how long O Lord when you look on these things and the Lord tells Habakkuk that he's going to send the armies from the north on his people and he's, he's horrified by this how can this be these are an evil and wicked people and God is unrepentant but it is other prophets who will make it very clear that God will call the Assyrians and the Babylonians to account for what they do they will not get off scot-free So God is in control, even in this situation. And I think the last thing I would say about this passage is, and this is where I agree with Brueggemann to a degree, I think it is ironic, and I think that's why it's here. We're reading this. We're reading about the death of seven of Saul's descendants. And we're getting a glimpse of this now after we've just had the whole story about David's adultery with Bathsheba, his murder of her husband Uriah, and the consequences that flowed from that. The consequences being the death of his eldest son Amnon, the death of his second son Absalom, and the death of his third son. And as you look at this, you would think to yourself, Look, if all of this happened at the beginning of David's reign, wouldn't you think that David would have been very afraid to break faith? If David had had this whole incident, which he did, around 2 Samuel chapter 9, and had given over these seven sons or descendants of Saul to the Gibeonites, don't you think it would have made him very, very careful about how he conducted his relationships? Don't you think it would have made him very careful to treasure covenant relationships that were made? And yet it is David who interferes in the covenant relationship of another marriage. It is David who has Uriah put to death, one of his own premier fighting men, so that he can have his wife and cover his sin. Did he seriously think That you could do that kind of thing and shed blood and God not know? 
Well, there is irony in this, okay. And that's why we're hearing about the story at this point, to reinforce to us this dreadful irony that although this happened in the early stage of his own kingship, David takes the same kind of route and makes the same kind of mistakes. Well, there's mercy in this. There's mercy in this in that God hears and heals the land. And there's mercy in the story of David in the way in which even after running from Absalom, he's brought back and he has the opportunity to establish himself again as king until such time as his son Solomon will take over, though he's going to lose another son before then. And the one thing I would want to leave with you as we think about a passage like this this evening is that this book is screaming out at us from the beginning, from Cain kills Abel, from Adam and Eve try to deceive God in the garden, to this incident with Saul being caught or his descendants being caught as a consequence of his genocide, to David doing the same kind of things and not learning the lesson. This book screams at us time and time again, will you please pay attention? Will you please heed the word of God? Now, I'm no better than David. I'm no better than anybody else here. But I do need to hear this story. For all the sermons that I have preached over 20 odd years, if I had had the wit and the conviction to actually apply to my own life all the things I've said to other people, then I would not have made some pretty stupid mistakes. I would not have caused some of the hurt that I have caused and I would not have grieved God in some of the ways I have grieved him. If you go out this evening puzzling on this story and thinking about this story, go out also with this. Heed the word of God. Don't simply repeat the same mistakes that people make generation after generation by treating lightly a relationship with God, by treating lightly covenant relationships that are made in God's name by treating lightly other people and their lives and trampling over their heads because God always calls it all to account and don't treat lightly the need for atonement I will be interested to know what you make of this passage and I hope you do go and read it and reflect on it and think about it and you can email me or novel me or phone me or whatever and tell me if you think I'm talking nonsense but do reflect on it it's there for a reason and it screams at us this evening to listen carefully Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount I've told you all these things we've talked about relationships we've talked about attitudes we've talked about behaviour we've talked about all of these things to his disciples and then he said there are two kinds of people there are some who listen and then they build their houses on sand and there are some who listen and they build their houses on rocks you choose it's not because I said it's because this is what scripture is yelling at us go build your life on what scripture teaches us about the nature of God and what it means to conduct a relationship with him let's pray together Father, thank you for passages in Scripture that really make us stop and think. 
thank you that what we're given here is not a Sunday school manual in a sense. It's not just dead simple and dead easy, but it reflects the complex and complicated nature of our lives, our decisions and our choices, and forces us to think about them. But help us in all of this to see your hand of grace and of mercy. See the way in which graciously you come time and again to your people and offer fresh opportunities. And help us to avoid the foolishness of selfish arrogance that thinks in our case it will be different. In our case we will escape. Help us to be committed to lives of holiness and truthfulness and justice because it's the right thing. Help us to be committed to lives of integrity because we know you're watching. Help us to do what is right because it pleases you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.